Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Will Saul. He's known to be a great DJ and producer, but he also excels at A&R. He's now the head of A&R at K7, and his house music label has clocked up over 100 releases, a milestone he celebrated with an extensive tour earlier this year. In conversation with Carlos Hawthorne, Saul offers an insight to his extensive experience running labels and working with artists. But despite his success, Saul still considers his work a series of happy accidents and continues to let artists and circumstances shape his output. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Will Saul is up next. kind of approaching September now what kind of summer has it been for you it's actually been quite a quiet summer in terms of gigs for me um, just off the back of the uh, the tour for the 100th release and sort of 10th anniversary of Aus so I had a very busy April May and, and I've just had a just come back from a holiday in Cornwall with my family and yeah just very quiet August on the gigs front so that enables me to uh, really focus on K7, the label management, and other bits and bobs that I do. There must be some sharp contrast, I mean, with the family life to kind of being on the road and then coming back and Monday getting back straight back into a different routine altogether. Yeah, it, it is. And I mean, I've, I've got two kids. Um, eldest is nearly five. I've never been really one to, to party extensively. Um, I choose my moments, <laughs> um, which is very few and far between, unfortunately, now with uh, with kids. But I'm pretty disciplined. So if I've got a, a gig, I'll always usually get the first flight out straight after finishing the show so that I can be home and get a weekend with the family. I just The only way I get over it is in terms of the sleep deprivation through traveling and being up late at night is uh, I just try and keep fit, just run a lot. And that seems to knock my body clock back into shape as quickly as possible. So in terms of the K7 stuff and working on the label, you do that from home? I do that from home, um, come up to London fairly regularly, go to Berlin fairly regularly, their head office is over there. But yeah, I've been self-employed working at home for 15 years now. And you're saying you must like that? Yeah, I don't really know any different, to be honest with you. I think I'd probably get a lot less done if I worked in an office because I'd be so like distracted just speaking to people. And at the moment, I can get a lot done in a short space of time working um, on my own. But it is good and important to come up to London regularly to sort of meet people and, and actually face-to-face stuff is really valuable as well. Yeah, um, You mentioned the tour there. 
I mean, what were some of the highlights? The best shows were, were in Lisbon and Barcelona, actually, for the Picnic Electronic guys. There's nearly 8,000 people in front of one stage in the Barcelona wow. one, which was, they've got, they've got it really locked down in terms of incredible events. And also Lisbon was really good because it's just an amazing city. I really love Lisbon, so... But lots of good shows. But yeah, those two were the highlights. So, yeah, I mean, 10 years, 100 releases. Was it coincidence that happened at the same time? Complete coincidence, actually. <laughs> um, primarily, it got to 100 much quicker in the last three years since doing a deal with K7 and having them label manage the labels for me um, and just being much more streamlined and efficient and in our label, but someone else does all of the admin stuff, so... That means we can release more music because it's not just me and my wife juggling all of everything that I do. So that has meant that we probably released, on average, 15 to 18 records a year in the last three years, whereas before it would probably be only be about six. <laughs> so that's sped up the the hundredth release over the last three years way right. quicker. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't have reached it for another six or seven years. Yeah, I read you say that kind of six to eight was. I mean, it was the kind of the max that you were able to do physically yeah um, but it was also kind of the most you felt the label should be putting out at that period that's kind of yeah kind it, of doubled it has done tripled actually <laughs> um i think what happened after we hit a really nice run of form i'll call it run of form but we hit a real hot spell of releases with stuff from george Fitzgerald, bicep uh, joy orbison dusky we hit a real run of form when i was still doing it on my own without k7 um and I think that sort of catapulted the label into a lot more people's um, ears and eyes. And as a result of that, I had a lot more artists approaching me for wanting to release on the label. Um, and I was hesitant to increase the, the output, but then a lot of the people that I wanted to work with all very much had their own identity, very much had their own sound. I sort of looked at it and thought, well, if all the artists can stand on their own two feet, they're not competing with each other for a spot on their schedule. It's It's more about artists doing their yeah doing their own thing really and, and I think then it became apparent that it doesn't matter how much music you release if, if everyone's you know doing their own thing and has their own focus and sound so I increased the output because yeah there was so much good music and I could actually release it so yeah it just made sense yeah I mean if you could kind of break down kind of day by day how your role at the label has changed since K7 came on board uh completely um in terms of um, yeah I spend a lot more time searching for music and keeping in touch with, with with things and obviously now I'm head of A&R at K7 as well I spend time doing that so all of the general setup of release is done by my label manager Jody um, who's brilliant and I'm literally just signing the artists preparing the deals and I then hand it over to him to, to release manager I'll, I'll oversee the whole thing in terms of you know when it comes to press you know selecting media outlets to premiere something or things like that I'll still be aware of what's going on and, and sometimes stick my oar in but most of the time I just leave Jody to it and just yeah sign the music and, and then give it to him to to administer. It's nice that you have more time to A&R because I imagine that um, well the more successful label comes you know a lot more people come to you it must be easy just to rely on that kind of influx of stuff but to be able to actually go out there and yeah, it's Look. important. To, it's definitely really important to, to keep in touch. But having said that, this might sound a bit controversial. I've never really been a big listener of demos that have been sent into the record label, right. primarily because even when I was doing it on on my own, 
I still had a lot of work doing it all on my own. And I was making more music, and that's the one thing that suffered really in the last few years is, is the amount of music that I've had the chance to actually get in, in the studio and make. You, literally, the amount of demos that we get emailed into the record labels would be a full-time job if you're just listening to it all. So I've never, I've always gone out and found artists picked up a, an early release from somewhere or seen them bubbling in some way and then approached them for music even from the start of the label it was more about approaching artists that I really liked that were and creating something with the label through them so I've never been a listener of demos I imagine your methods for a and have changed a lot yeah as the label becomes more visible you get sent stuff by managers who are who you kind of know and trust and, and who are looking after a great roster of artists so more music comes to you from trusted sources rather than having to go out and, uh, and dig around for it. But I, th I still think it's really important to go out and keep, keep very much in touch with everything that's out there. I mean, in 2006, the likes of SoundCloud and stuff weren't up and running in the way they are now. Totally, yeah. Um, what were your kind of what were your methods back then? It's oh, a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, I very much created House around a, a friend of mine, Fink, um, who was releasing on Ninja Tune and released for us as a sideshow and, and his one of his closest friends Lee Jones who was my my and still obviously Lee Jones because that's his real name so the label was really created around those two guys to release their albums so it was kind of a and ring through social circle really I was working at Sony Music with Finn that's how I met him and just felt that, that their music needed to be released because I loved him it was brilliant so it was yeah it, you, you definitely couldn't A&R in the same way as you do now through digging around on SoundCloud for sure because it obviously yeah, didn't exist. Will you ever go down and check out a kind of new, new artist set? Well, because I still DJ quite a lot, I still hear a lot of music on my travels in that way, but less easy now. I've got kids and I live in the country sure. to, to get into London and, and go to a gig. I, I used to a lot more, obviously, but again, you can still see live performances online very easily, usually from anyone that you stumble across. So I think that's kind of less relevant in a way, but obviously if you then find someone that you really think is good, you want to go and see them perform live. But that initial contact point, I don't think is is essential to, to be at the show. And in terms of bringing new artists into label, that's always something that's done kind of very successfully. Where's the balance between kind of honing the ones that you have and, and bringing in more? Yeah, that's a constant balance, really. I mean, this year we've brought in a lot of sort of quite established artists while still having sort of what I would class as development artists. So people like Buana, Shinoda, in a way, you and you and Seo would all class as artists that are developing, but have still been there a little while. Fold is another one. Um, and bringing new people in to keep the direction of the label sort of fresh and interesting and surprising to people. There's a bit of a balance, really. If you're constantly releasing music from new artists, then... The reality is, is that you probably won't make very much money for a, a, a small space or medium space of time because they're not going to sell as well. But without bringing in new artists, your, your label's not going to sound fresh, stay interesting, and it's a constant evolution. So it's a it's a, that's it's a really important balance to staying in in business. To be honest with you, one of the kind of more interesting projects, or one of the more surprising projects, maybe was Cassie's album. Yeah, um, yeah, it's her debut album. You know, she's an artist who was associated with you know um panorama bar resident and quite sure. like a kind of dark berlin sound in a way mm -hmm. um minimal and then yeah she's she's put out a kind of almost singer songwriter thing Popped up and out. It's surprising to me as well at the time <laughs> yeah really interesting just tell me how how that whole thing came about being completely honest it came through i mean a few steps before that i approached cassie relentlessly to to sing on my own music and it wasn't right for her at the time or, or whatever so i've been a huge fan of her 
the album came about with us was that actually it came through Luke Solomon. She was talking to Defected and they couldn't quite agree on uh, on terms or, or the album. That's interesting. Luke reached out to me and said, you know, put me and her in touch. And, and from then it was, yeah, it happened very quickly because I'm a big fan of what she does. And that's where K7 definitely helps is that I think Partly why I did the deal with them is, is, is for infrastructure they have and, and reputation they have as releasing albums. Um, for us, I think perhaps if we hadn't been working with K7, we wouldn't have been able to do, do the deal with Cassie because she looked at ours combined with K7 in terms of what K7 had done with albums and sort of saw it as a really good fit. So for that kind of artist that is bigger and ambitious and requires you know a really strong marketing team and an album pedigree f- from a record label k7 definitely bring that to what we do as a record label and where the label is at now is there still as strong a feedback process as there used to be did you mean from press and and people no i mean i mean in terms of just from you as a as the label manager t- towards the artist in ah, terms of yeah so you mean in terms of relationship with the artist yeah um because yeah, the, obviously with someone like Cassie, there's not been no sort of development for her with right. me with her. It was a finished album when it came to me. Right. Whereas with Midland, we released his first record, and it's an ongoing process of seeing them develop as producers. So it was a very different scenario. There's still a lot of that in, involved in what I do with Alson on, on the EPs and everything else, and the artists for sure. There's still a lot of that with, with me and the guys. But um, in that instance with Cassie, it was it was a slightly different process. But also with some of the art, the, the bigger artists that have been working this year, people like Paul Wolford. Um, we've got something coming out with, with Tom Trago and Recluse. That's been very much them sending me music and me going, that's amazing, let's release it, rather than right. sort of, you know, obviously they're established artists. So this year we have actually worked with some more established artists, which is a conscious decision in terms of me reaching out to people to sort of just tweak the direction and the sound of the label, you know, where people were based. It was a very UK sounding label beforehand, which was completely accidental in right. terms of the artists that we started to work with through that hot spell that I mentioned. Um, whereas consciously reaching out to, in fact, that's not necessarily true because the Cassie Cat happened totally accidentally. Tom Trago was definitely someone that I'd wanted to work with for a long while. Recluse is an all time hero of mine. So that was a relationship that has developed over many years. It's just sort of, most of the label is kind of happy accidents <laughs> with some strategy loosely implemented by me. In terms of the kind of feedback sessions you might have with an artist, they might be quite interesting exchanges. I mean, how do you kind of negotiate telling an artist about their own music and and like having the, having the authority to... It's a very delicate process because, um, yeah, obviously it's, it's something that's very personal to them and some people aren't open to it at all. From experience, most people are always open to hearing your opinion but they might not necessarily agree with it but I think probably because I come from a production place myself in terms of making music you do it very sensitively and you can sometimes see hear things in terms of an idea for a sound or an arrangement tweak that might help and most of the time people are really open to that you know and if it's smaller artists that or or, or newer artists I should say that usually they're hungry for feedback on their music and and they trust you because you've been around and, and listened to a lot of music and they want that feedback from you. But I think as an artist finds their feet and really takes you know, takes hold of their own sound, then you, uh, you don't need to give them feedback because they're delivering great music and it's it's just like, well, that's brilliant, you know, done. Or maybe shorten the breakdown by eight bars or 16 bars or you've got a bit self-indulgent with that or this and that. But <laughs> most of the time it's not. Most of the time when, as they develop and become comfortable in their own shoes, as it were, that you, know, you, you don't really need to give any feedback. Who gives you feedback on your music? My wife. <laughs> and... 
Yeah, I don't really. Actually, that's, that's a very good point. I, I, most of my stuff recently has been with collaborators and with friends anyway, so it's a constant feedback process as you're making it. Actually, yeah, Jody, Jody will, will say to me, no, that's shit, or that's good, or I like that. He's a pretty good sounding board for my own stuff. You mentioned that your own music, your own productions had suffered a little bit since yeah. joined K7, but this year you did put out an EP. Yeah, EP on, comp- on Compact, yeah, with, with Kieran Common, who's a good good friend, and we've got more stuff coming out together, actually, but it seems it will seem like, relatively, we've released quite a lot of music this year, but it's taken about three years to make the two EPs that we've released, so, yeah, we've got something coming out on us in um, October with a Recluse remix, and um, something early next year on the label as well. It's quite an interesting coming together, you and Common on Compact. It is, yeah, quite, an, yeah, I guess quite an unexpected collaboration process. I had to be honest with you, I met a lot of people that I've worked with and, and on a number of levels over the years through Laurie Appleblim. He's kind of my right. gateway to, or has been my gateway the more, more I look back on it to a lot of people and, and good people. I reached out to him when I heard his mix for Temper, which was way back, and that was how I ended up working with Ramadan Man, and that was how I in turn then started working with Harry because David and Harry were good friends and at uni together, so... Laurie's from Bristol. I moved back to Somerset to bring up my kids with my wife um, about six years ago. And when I moved back, he, he introduced me to a lot of people. Jules, October, and Kieran were two of them. And we ended up becoming friends and jumping in the studio together. So, yeah, you mentioned Laurie Applebaum there and that you listened to his Temper CD. But before that, you'd kind of incorporated quite a lot of bass music into your balance mix. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the timings there. I think, no, the balance mix came after. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, because I actually remember I, I had included a track called Sula Sabla by Laurie and David, which we released on house. So hadn't really released any, I mean, I'd released stuff from Sideshow, which was very dubby. And, you know, I used to DJ play breaks 15 years, a long time ago, even with Simple. So right. and was always into hip hop and, and breaks before house music to be honest so that's quite a natural connection for me but yeah Laurie was my first touching point to I guess you would classify it as the post dubstep sound when dubstep sort of started becoming more about in my opinion a little bit more musical really and soulful rather than sort of quite tear out I guess is probably the technical description for it I wasn't really massively into a lot of that early stuff but when Martin and a lot of those guys started making their sort of early forms of dubstep, hybrid house, whatever you want to call it. Um, that was when I started to get really interested, and I, I heard that through Laurie. So, yeah, Laurie was my connection to that, for sure. I mean, if you kind of take yourself back to that period, what was it that was so exciting about the music? It just sounded like people making house music that had never really listened to house music, which is a really good thing. I think whenever you get people making a, a, a style of music without any preconceptions, it works, usually. It may not work in your opinion, but it, you always get fresh takes on it, usually, and... That was def- definitely happening in that in that patch in the UK when um, a lot of guys that had been really into going to forward and, and, and a lot of that early dubstep started discovering house and then making their own takes on just making music that they love. But it was drawing from from house and very definitely from, you know, baseline driven sound that that was creating some really lovely new hybrids. Yeah, it's kind of one of the last instances of a of a totally unique, fresh sound, I think. I think so, within within house and techno, yeah, for sure. That's pretty fair to say, I think. When things started to move over more towards Fall to the Floor, was there any kind of, was there any part of you that felt sad to leave behind this kind of hybrid or leave behind a kind of more broken style and just easing back in towards a kind of... I've always let the artist shape the sound of the label, really, and those guys, as as they sort of started 
listening to more and more house and techno, that was the direction that they kind of went with the music that they were making. So it didn't happen consciously from my perspective. It just happened because the artists that we were working with started making more house music, really, or techno. But yeah, I'll always sort of love and want to release more broken, steppy music, you know, if I find someone that I think is doing it well or in a fresh way, then I'll definitely put it out. So, but in, in very, you know, that was why I ended up stopping Simple Records was because the, you know, the first Dusky record came out on Simple and I felt that the labels were converging in sound and it didn't really make sense to have two labels releasing similar sort of sounding music, whereas previously they'd been quite different. It's definitely gone in that direction. Why did you stop Simple instead of stopping House? Um, I think because the artists that were releasing on Simple at the time, you and you and say Dusky, really wanted to release on House, um, yeah. and it just felt natural to. It felt like more people were interested in House rather than Simple at the time. I guess trends at the time were yeah, dictating that. So it felt easier to switch the guys that were releasing on Simple onto House because. They wanted to release on house anyway, so it wasn't really a difficult decision to make, to be honest. It happened really quite organically. Looking at the artists that have released on house and that you've kind of nurtured, you know, it's an incredible list. How are you finding these guys? How, how are you doing it? When we released the record from Joy Orbison, which came off the back of a couple of really interesting records from Apple Blim and um, Ramadan Man, which obviously now has, David has become Pearson Sound. That stage of the label meant that we suddenly, as a record label, became really interesting to, and, and, and a lot of younger producers were aspiring to release on it without really me being aware of that. So when I got the first promo for Pete Joy Orbison's Hot Flush record, I instantly reached out to him on what was MySpace at the time and said, hey, I'd love you to do something. And again, that was at the, at the time before, well before that record had even been released, so it was impossible to tell the the reaction that was going to come to from that record but instantly it sounded like nothing else out there and incredibly fresh and, and he was really interested in working with us because of those records with Ramadan Man and um, Apple Blim so then the Jorobson record came out on Hot Flush went massive and then ours came out not long after that and then you only need to string a couple of records together like that and, and suddenly you've got a lot of really interesting I then approached George Fitzgerald Harry's music suddenly was ready to start releasing uh, off the back of a bit of development with him. The rest was just, yeah, just a happy coincidence <laughs> of stuff happening at the same time. <laughs> and Leon Vinyl wanted to do something. And again, he, you know, that was one of his first records that, yeah, I guess it was just right place, right time for a little while. But it was a nice, nice patch of a, a year or so where it was really interesting. Um, is there anything that kind of ties all these artists together, do you think? Or anything that they, as, as artists, have in common? I think all of those guys that we've been mentioning now have the ability to write really strong hooks in their music, memorable hooks that, that stay with people. And that is kind of what I'm always looking for in music is, is more than just a, a chord progression or a, a bass line riff, although sometimes either of those two things can be incredibly memorable. But producer's ability to write a really memorable hook is, is what separates them in terms of reaching a lot of people. So that's subconsciously what I've ended up looking for in music. And I think I probably it's probably crystallised for me as a as what I'm looking for. It, it, I don't have a set of rules. I just hear something and it connects to me. And I think I've realized that I'm able to hear that in people's music and identify it. It's what I like. It's what I look for. What do you think it was about the label and about you and House that was attracting these artists? I think it was the fact that we were doing something pretty... With the first Apple Blim and Ramadan Man records, they were, they were definitely 
new and unique and hadn't been done before in terms of that hybrid of house and techno and, and uh, you know, a really strong bass line. The, the way that they were doing it was definitely fresh and unique. And I think that it was a timing thing in terms of all those kids that were going forward and listening to, to dubstep but hearing something new for the first time as well. And I think that definitely resonated with them. So, yeah, it was just lucky timing. <laughs> but I, I don't forget, I'd come from releasing breaks and being into that sort of music rather than house music, although yeah. Simple was primarily a house music label and that had come from working in Phonica. Simple had really started as a breaks label, albeit at the deeper end of the spectrum, releasing stuff from people like Precision Cuts and stuff like those guys. So I'd come from really being into a breakbeat and a broken rhythm, and that was what attracted me to that stuff with, you know, with Apple Bloom and, and Ramadan Man and why it felt right for me to release it on, on Else because Else was the offshoot to Simple, which was the house label. So right. it all kind of weirdly fit together. When they all merged into Else, I suppose it kind of became just more of a dance floor outlook. Uh, again, subconscious. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was very much, it, we'd released albums from Lee and Lee Jones and Sideshow, which still fundamentally dance music, dub disco from Sideshow or, you know, stuff fundamentally dub music, but in 4-4. In and Lee's stuff was always beautifully intricate that you could listen to at home as much as, you know, on a dance floor. So we'd always really been a dance dance floor focused label, but I guess the definitely the the weight and power of some of those records from, you know, the Joy Orbisons and George Fitzgeralds and stuff is definitely more it's a peak time dance floor record. Yeah. Um, but at the time of releasing it was still left field in terms of it wasn't a house record or it wasn't a techno record. It was still kind of a little bit left of, of what would be the norm whereas we've almost ended up releasing the norm in terms of that's the way that the producers have gone so it's just cycles of of trends so from the kind of post dubstep era apple blimp and sound you then found yourself in the kind of eye of the storm of this kind of new uk <laughs> house sound yeah and we're there for a little while and and i guess now we've just tried to develop more artists a lot than the uk base with you know with people like fold and shinoda and stuff stuff like that and artists but then other artists are from different places in the world so yeah i guess we've we've naturally sort of i'm still releasing you know i'm working with a lot of those guys bicep midland but also consciously trying to bring in different sounds and different artists so keep the label fresh what's the biggest selling record on the label ever yeah i think it'll be a toss-up probably between joy Joy Orbison's record and the Dusky Careless record. Digitally, the Dusky Careless record by really? a long, long, long way, yeah. Because that ended up being number one on Beatport, in right. the overall Beatport chart, with people like Tiesto and stuff like that <laughs> in the same really? chart. Yeah. Wow. So that that was, yeah, really weird and ridiculous, but I said that was definitely the bestseller. Dusky are a good example of someone who really have kind of caught the imagination and, and done a really good job of riding the kind of overground and underground ever since we started working with them they've had an incredibly loyal fan base of people that buy their music those guys are a prime example f for me of people being able to write a really strong hook whether or not you like it or not in terms of its commerciality or you can't argue that their their music connects with people on a pretty big level actually we've seen that for sure just the amount of specialist radio play they've had on radio one and everything else was was, was we were blown away by it it's never we never had anything else like that and that's through yeah, writing a, a really strong hook, um, which stood them very well. I, mean, I spoke to them recently, and they, you know, they said that they they like 
doing the big live shows and you know the album they've got now of yep. Gary Newman and Wiley and whatever major label but they also want to do the, the club EPs and then like labels like House are probably good platforms for them to do that on yeah for sure I mean they've developed massively in terms of their ambition and the way that they've ended up releasing you know the, the album I can't wait to I've heard some of it it's, it's I, I hope it does as well as it should do for them Alfie is, is very much a classically trained musician and, and knows exactly what he's doing in the studio in, in, in terms of being able to craft very special records so um and again i say that it might not be your thing if you're listening to different types of music but they've written music that has definitely and will continue to connect with a lot of people you know i've read plenty of times in interviews of yours that you you know you're not consciously trying to ride any kind of trend or anything but is there any kind of concern given to just staying on like something that is doing well uh, yeah, I mean, I, d- I did realise that, you know, we had become a record label that was, was definitely riding or releasing a lot of UK sounding music. And I'm very proud of that in the sense that, you know, they're all friends and had come from a scene that I was involved in but at the s- and were writing incredibly fresh music. But at the same time, yeah, if, if you carry on releasing the same kind of record over and over again, people will become very bored of it and won't want to buy your music anymore. So um, you have to kind of try and keep surprising on a certain level I think so that's a balance for sure but at the same time you don't want to alienate a fan base of people that are buying your music but I think that's why if you just try and keep releasing music from artists that you believe in they're not going to keep writing the same record over and over again I mean if you listen to Huxley's album for us in relation to the last couple of EPs that he's released with us they're very very different records so hopefully the artists that you select can evolve over time as well looking at your kind of career and your output more generally you know you're a DJ or a producer but I feel like that labels have kind of been your main focus which is rare for artists you know usually the labels are kind of a complement to a, a DJ career or a production career I mean why is that? It's always been a safety net for me in terms of the record labels I've always felt that it's kind of to a certain extent normal is the wrong word to describe it because running a small independent record label is definitely not a normal thing to do but it's, it's always felt like a if I'm running a little business that that gives me an element of control over generating an income for myself that gives me the security to keep doing what I love then somehow running a record label that I kind of knew how to make work had more security than than just stepping out into the abyss of producing music and seeing where it went I've tried to combine the two definitely over the years but um, I have always fallen back to the record label so I mean there's that in one side, but also um, I love doing it. I've, I've, I've been doing it really for as long as I can remember now in terms of A&R and music, so ever since leaving university. So it's kind of, I, I have probably realised how to do it and, and do it relatively well, so. Was it something that you always wanted to do? Was it kind of when you went into Not it? really, just... no. I mean, I knew I wanted to work in the music industry because I love music and was passionate about music, but I kind of, I ended up starting my own record label, Simple, because I had a really horrible boss <laughs> at Sony Music and I couldn't stand working for anymore. So I was thinking in the back of my mind, it'd be nice to set up a little record label. And there was a couple of guys I was working with at Sony that were up for it. And my mum and dad were like, well, you've not got any kids or a mortgage, so now's the time. So um, yeah, I had a crack at it and, and managed to sort of supplement doing that with working in record stores and um, making ends meet for a fair few years before it was able to support me. But no, I didn't know that um, being a, an A and R was 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 what was going to define me in terms of what I do. But it's just ended up. I think it's fair to say that it has ended up being the case. 
In terms of your DJing, I mean, is it fair to say that you just stopped touring as much when the family started? Not really. I still probably averaged three or four shows a month, but I'm just more tactical in terms of making sure that there's always weekends off every month and always time to never being away for too many weeks on the trot on the weekends but then at the same time I work from home and I'm there every morning you know to to be with my kids and to, to give them a bath at the end of the day and then put them to bed so in the week which I, I think the majority of not the majority but a lot of people can't do so um, I'm still there a lot more you know if I'm, if I'm away only three or four nights a month that's not that much in the biggest scheme of things. What's the relationship like between your DJing and, you know, being a label boss? I mean, how much does one feed into the other? Pretty much, you know, yeah, a lot. Um, it's one of the sort of elements of what I do in terms of a DJ that has given me an edge or whatever you want to call it in the sense that I've always got a pool of music that no one else has heard to, to play. So there's always, I would say, 50% of my sets are a forthcoming music on the labels that no one else has heard. So there's always, if you come and hear me teach you, there's always going to be a lot of music that you've never heard anywhere else before because I'm the only person that has it, which is quite a nice position to be in, and I love that. Also, you're testing it out to feed back to artists, but also then, you know, you're throwing in lots of old stuff that, you, that you've loved for many years, and I think that's, for me, that's, that's a nice balance. Do you feel like you're representing the label when you play? Definitely, yeah. I think you're getting a big part of the label when you come and hear me DJ as well, for sure, so... Yeah. Let's take it back. You mentioned there that you started out DJing breaks. Yeah. More broken stuff. I mean, when was your, what was your first interaction with club music? Because I grew up in the country in Somerset, there wasn't really a, a club you could sneak into underage. So it, I had to be able to travel to get to said club, which meant 17 when I could yeah. jump into someone's car that could drive or my parents would trust me enough to let me get on a train to London. And I guess early early clubbing days were going to turn mills to hear like chemical brothers djing in the but there was a really they had a really good back room called eclectronica so that was some of my early traveling to go to clubs but yeah when you know obviously when i was growing up you literally all you the only way you could listen to new music was radio and reading music magazines reviews and hunting down that music and then trying to buy it so I mean I got turntables probably age 17 or 18 after working through the summer to get them and yeah as soon as I had turntables I was then able to start tracking you sort of build up trust in music reviewers taste that you kind of connect with and you used to have to hunt down the records that got four or five stars which was when you're based in the country with no sort of online internet way of buying music was challenging <laughs> a lot of trips to really ropey Somerset-based record stores and just sort of pulling out bits and bobs. And there was a really good second-hand store in Glastonbury that was filled with Can and Vangelis and, you know, anything slightly uh, like that, which was great. But clubbing-wise, it was getting in the car and on the train and travelling. Right. And, I mean, what was the kind of next step for you in terms of your career? Getting the turntables, I, I always knew that I wanted to sort of DJ and put on little parties. So once I went to when I started going to university in London, just doing little nights, promoting little nights in and around London. I think one of the first little residencies I, I got was playing before the party that played before Giles Peterson's <laughs> <laughs> night at, at Varumba on a Friday. So I used to literally start playing as soon as I finished work at six o'clock and play till nine, and then the party that played before Giles Peterson would start at nine, right. and then and then Giles Peterson would start obviously at sort of eleven. <laughs> so. 
but it was, it was really good because you got the after work crowd in there just sort of fresh from work wanting to let their hair down and yeah, I used to play hip hop and down tempo stuff for a couple of hours and, but I did that every week for a couple of years so yeah just doing little parties and, and then got the job at Sony and started Simple a few years after that so working at Kubla which was the shop before Fonica right. during that time um, and that was when I was really opened up to House and Techno because you were listening to all of the House and Techno records that came in and yeah, so Simple started off before I was working at the record stores, Precision Cuts, more breaksy stuff. As soon as I started working at the record stores, listening to all the amazing House and Techno that was coming out, definitely influenced the way I was sort of thinking about the labels. And I got Matthew Johnson to do a remix, one of his, I think it was probably his first ever remix, from hearing his first It Is What It Is records that came out and yeah, just getting informed by working in that shop, which was great. So it was kind of when you're in London around uni that you decided that the music industry was for you? Yeah, I started doing work experience at Sony during my degree, so I would go in there for a couple of days a week and just make tea and lick and stick envelopes and just generally soak it up. And then at the end of my degree, they gave me a, a job as a, a cross between sort of a junior product manager and junior A&R for Sony International. Did that for a couple of years before getting beasted by the... <laughs> horrible boss and then that was what made me leave and set up simple so if i'd had a really good boss i may not have set up set up my own record label to be honest with you so right. it was yeah. a blessing in disguise i mean what were the lessons that you took from working at sony to, to running your labels that was really invaluable just from seeing the how to release a record from creating the isrc codes to promoing a record at radio and club and and you just saw how a record was released internationally in each territory from bottom up so it was a really uh, valuable couple of years of learning how the record and the music industry worked really were there any record labels that you kind of idolized and just were the inf inspiration for what you were doing in terms of my own labels not i mean i had lots of record labels that i loved um yeah. labels like talking loud and um yeah i wasn't i wasn't so much uh, i wouldn't say i was inspired to start a record label f from other particular record labels it was more just wanting to release music and um, music from people that i really loved we mentioned earlier on that you put a record out this year for the first time in a couple of years. Yeah. And in 2013, you put out uh, your second album. It was a different project. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Close. I mean, is there another album in the works? Can you see yourself doing that? Not really. Um, <laughs> I definitely don't have the time to... I have the time to sometimes jump in the studio with, with Kieran and, and, and friends, but since having kids, since having a second kid... My studio has been exiled from the house. Oh, really? Yeah, there's no space in the house anymore. <laughs> um, so all my kit's over with Kieran in, in his studio in Bristol. So, yeah, I, I think probably I've got another baby on the way that's due in December. Um, okay. So, yes, I will make music with Kieran in, in fits and starts. and But I would like in, in maybe sort of three to five years' time, five years or so, when my wife's back fully in work, to sit around making techno in my pants and <laughs> not have to worry about yeah, supporting a family as much. So I will probably become a, an old graying producer, I imagine, because yeah, I would love to go back to just completely writing music and just fiddling around in the studio. That would I would love to end up doing that. I will end up doing that. It's just um, when. How comfortable do you feel in the studio these days? Pretty uncomfortable to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, just because I haven't done it, you have to, 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 to be sharp with it, you have to be doing it in big chunks for long periods of time. And for the last, since finishing the Close project, I haven't done anything really significantly. I've, I've had big chunks with Kieran in, in the studio, but of, you know, a week here or there. Yeah. Or a week of evenings here and there, but not much. Not, it would take me a little while to get back up to scratch. I mean, when did you first start 
dabbling? Probably during that 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 period of being at uni. Really, I got a, a, an Akai sampler and and Logic Cubase. Actually, I think I got first. That was when I, f- I first started dabbling for sure. Mm. You know, we've had ten years of house. Yep. What are we What are we thinking for the next ten years? Or will there be another ten years? I hope so. Yeah, I'd like to think so. I mean, I'm still loving releasing music as much as ever. Um, I couldn't tell you. I never really know what's going to happen beyond the next six months. <laughs> I'd like to try and release more albums from artists, but that very much depends on the music that I end up finding and whether it, you know it works in that context. So, why would you like to do that? Just because it's a bigger, more challenging sort of medium, and I think it's a nice way of. I still believe very much in in the album in terms of a way of expressing an artist expressing themselves how it's consumed is, is still very much open to interpretation i think the whole digital landscape has shifted so that i think people except for real probably music lovers i think i think people consume albums in an album way buy a cd and then listen to it from start to finish so but i like the idea of releasing albums from people because i think it's a really nice medium of, of artists expressing themselves as a label manager how do you combat that problem that that realistically maybe just not as many people as would, lis- would, would be listening to it as would have listened to it 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, you just have to put it out and believe in it and cut across your fingers, really, in terms of you have to try and, from a, a business perspective, keep the costs really low in terms mm. of not... You, we can't take huge risks on giving artists huge advances and letting them sit in the studio for six months off the back of that advance. It's definitely check the, music, the way people make music and... So yeah, we've got to try and keep the cost down in order for, for that format to still be a viable option for us. But at the same time, I think if there's a way of presenting it, I'm sort of coming around to the idea in my head, I haven't really fully figured it out yet, but I think if, if there's a way of presenting EPs in an album way, so sort of spreading them out a little bit, but still getting across the artistic idea that the artist has, but not presenting it in one big chunk, yeah, I mean, how would you do that other than kind of just volumes? Yeah, it would just be volumes, but I think there would be a thread that you would explore throughout the release process so that you, would, you wouldn't you would maybe give away the full story at the beginning and it would sort of spread out in terms of the the artist's intention of the music and the artist's idea would, would only really become apparent by the time you get to the third EP and it would be a, a way of consuming it so that you would, I don't know, like I said, <laughs> I still haven't fully sure, sure. realised nice it. I mean, are you imagining the artist to present you with the full 12 tracks? You'd probably have the album way before, but right. it's the way that you would release it and the way that you right. would present it through press and to fans and, and music buyers is, is, is what I think needs to be done in a creative way. I mean, one of the artists that I manage, Buana, his record on Lucky Me was released recently on the deep web and tracks were given out. It was a an album that was based around Kira, the anime movie, and the whole album was made from entirely from sampling the movie so there was a really interesting concept behind the music itself but it was the way that it was presented and you could get a track a week via the deep web and it was just an interesting and exciting way of experiencing the music and getting the music and people really connected to that so there's still interesting ways of of releasing music in it but i think it's very difficult to release an album unless you're that swings and roundabouts i could talk about this all day (laughs) in in terms of you know you look at established artists and they still have a very hungry album. You know, Flying Lotus, for example, have a very hungry um, fan base of people that want to consume an album. I suppose he's established that from the start, hasn't it? Yeah, he has. So, you know, labels like Warp Ninja that are known for releasing albums have that luxury. And I say luxury, don't get me wrong, they've worked really hard 
to have that luxury and and have done brilliantly in in releasing albums but they started releasing albums when albums were being consumed as albums whereas if you're coming into trying to release albums now without that pedigree and that reputation it's harder to do it for sure like i said we could talk about this for the rest of the day is that something you're thinking about more consciously now or are you still just yeah I'd, i'd still like to try and release albums it was fundamentally how we started, or close to how we started, or mm. why I started the label with Sideshow and Lee Jones. Just finding the right artists that that make that format make sense, I think, is probably the best way of describing it.
Thank you.